from the studios of KPCW in Park City. It's This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about the environment and our relationships with it. I'm Chris Cherniak. And I'm Claire Wiley. Our first guest this morning is author Julie Burwald talking about her new book, Life on the Rocks. The book takes us on a journey through underwater ecosystems that reveal incredible complexities as well as an uncertain future. She contemplates the inevitable impacts which climate change as well as the beauty of small victories. Then in the second part of the show, professor of civil and environmental engineering and award-winning author David Sedlak joins us to discuss his new book, Water for All, Global Solutions for a Changing Climate. Now, in great detail, Sedlak outlines informed and hopeful approaches for rethinking our assumptions about the way that water is managed and offers up myriad possibilities that could help create a future with clean, abundant, and affordable water for all. Environmental awareness and education, that's what this green earth is all about. Stay with us. And you are listening to KPCW, and this is This Green Earth here on this Tuesday, December 5th. I'm Claire Wiley. And I'm Chris Cherniak. And our first guest is author Julie Burwald, who has written a new book, Life on the Rocks. Hi, Julie. Hi, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, it's so good to have you on the show, and uh, your writings are so beautiful. This is your second book. The first was about jellyfish. And now you have written a beautiful book about coral. Um, so you seem to have an affinity for the underwater world. Can you first share with us your background and how you got not only into science, but particularly your love for coral? And which of those came first? Was it your affinity for the study of science or the intrigue of the coral reefs? Yeah, um, well, thanks for those super kind words. Um, yeah, I grew up really landlocked in Missouri and St. Louis. And so I really didn't have a lot of experience with the, I had a lot more experience actually with Utah than I did with the ocean growing up because mm -hmm. my my dad is a, a rock hound. Mm -hmm. And so our summer vacations would be driving around digging up rocks and we pass through Utah all the time. <laughs> um, Anyway, uh, but in college, I went to Israel for um, a study abroad program, and I was pretty miserable on the program. I just, I don't know, I was probably homesick, and I didn't fit in, and there was a, um, a sign on the wall of the university, like, marine ecology course over winter break, and I was like, yeah, sign me up, because I wasn't in a good place. And um, we got on this bus and went through the desert and ended up at the Red Sea. And I got off the bus and I was like, where are we? This is so different from any place I've ever been. There were red mountains and this blue ocean. And they like threw um, a mask and snorkel and fins at us and said, get in the water. And I was like, how? But um, when I find, when I put my head underneath the the water, I, the coral reefs are really close to shore there. Mm. And it was like this incredible architecture, this like teeming city, This the, there were so many colors and so much life. And I thought like, how have I lived on this planet for my whole life and never knew that this existed? And also it really struck me that like, these were all animals. There aren't, it was like a forest, but with, made of animals, not where the base of the forest isn't trees and plants, it's, it's animals. And that just felt like it's another, it's another world on our world. And I just 
yeah, in that moment, I was like, I'm gonna be a marine biologist. And so that's kind of how it started. And you did pursue that dream. So you did become a marine biologist and you, it sounds like, stuck with that love for coral and the understanding of it. Can you tell us uh, more about the world of coral, its unique attributes? I know that they uh, there's some unique reproduction and unique symbiotic relationships that it has. So can you take us into the world of coral? Yeah, coral are amazing animals. They are, I mean, they look kind of plant-like, but they are actually um, just first cousins of the jellyfish. So that's kind of the connection between the two books. Um, They're made out of little polyps, which are kind of almost like the size of, I mean, they come in many sizes, but you can think about them like pencil eraser kind of size. And um, they live in colonies. So they're all connected with through their stomachs. So they're like a jellyfish upside down. Their tentacles reach out into the water and they have a mouth. And so they capture, they can capture little zooplankton and eat it, but um, they don't have to. And the reason they don't have to is because inside of their tissues, like kind of like a tattoo, they have algae that live there, little single celled algae. And those algae photosynthesize and that means they take sun, light, and water, which is all around them, and carbon dioxide, and they mix it together and they make sugar. And that sugar, they feed 90% of the sugar that they make to the coral animal. So it's almost, I mean, there's lots of ways to think about it. And a lot of people, uh, a lot of coral scientists kind of discuss this, you know, all, all different ways, but you can think about it as the coral kind of farm, the algae, it's like a crop. And they and they they feed off of it, um, but at the same time they give the algae a home, a place to live where it's they're safe from predation. So, it's it's kind of a two way street. And um, but it's so much sugar and it's such great fuel that the coral can use that to build calcium carbonate. So they actually take calcium and carbonate out of the seawater and build limestone, and that's how they create these m- massive reefs that. are like a belt around the tropics of our planet. And the reason that um, coral only live in the tropics is because they need to stay in places where it's really sunny for the algae that live in their tissues. Hmm. Um, And so, you know, the days are longest there. Um, So that's why we only have coral reefs in tropical places. Um, But those reefs are just incredible. That's the architecture I was talking about uh, when you first asked me the first question. Um, And and that architecture is so important to the oceans that 25% of all marine species depend on coral reefs at some point in their life, despite the reefs only taking up about less than 1% of the ocean. So they have a disproportionately important effect on the ocean ecosystems. And we don't exactly know how many species live in the ocean because our oceans are not as well studied as they should be, but it could be around a million species depend on the coral wow. reefs at some point in their life. So it's it's really important. Right. It's a it's a, a nursery, in effect, yeah, for the yeah, marine exactly. ecosystems. So yeah. in, in the absence of, of coral, um, there's that knock-on effect. Uh, other marine species suffer as well. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, it, and you know, um, I, I don't know if this is the next question or not, but <laughs> it might be, um, 
but you know, as we warm up our planet, um, the coral are sort of, I don't know if you want to say like poster child or what you want to say, but they are having, they are suffering first. Um, and that will have a knock on effect to all of the ecosystems and all, I mean, all of the other, yeah, ecosystems and, and species that depend on the coral reefs. Yeah, describe to us what is happening to the coral and with climate change and also obviously human impact. Yeah, so, you know, it's unfortunately kind of the Achilles heel for the coral is heat. Um, and we, and this is again, like, I think one of the really interesting things about this coral algae symbiosis is that we, well, let me just say what happens is when the water warms up by a degree or two and then stays warm for um, a week or two, the coral will bleach. And you've probably heard about this in the news. Mm -hmm. um, in this summer in Florida, for example, there was just a really horrible heat wave and crazy bleaching. Um, and so what, what bleaching is, is a dissolution of the relationship between the coral and the algae. Um, and the algae gets kicked out of the coral. But what's really interesting is we don't know who does the kicking out. Right. If it's the coral saying, I'm feeling really stressed. I'm going to ramp up my immune system. I'm going to like kind of get rid of anything that's not my own cells, which means the algae, and then it kicks it out. Or if it's the algae saying, hey, I've been disguising myself so I can live inside of your um, tissues, but I'm going to reveal myself to your to your immune system because something's not right mm -hmm. and gets it and then the algae like gets itself kicked out so like those really like very sophisticated chemical interactions between the algae and the coral we don't understand but nevertheless the algae leaves the coral and that and it will take with it all of its sugar making capabilities and so suddenly the coral is starving it can eat um, and actually, there's some new research showing that maybe in places where coral have more food available, they survive a bleaching a little better. Mm. But um, yeah, when the algae leaves, it takes its food and it takes its color and the coral look white because what you're seeing is the limestone skeleton underneath the clear tissue of the coral. And if the temperatures don't fall, um, the coral will die. And so it's it's already sort of one number is about half the coral reefs on our planet have died already from coral bleaching. How many bleaching cycles can coral, and I'm sure it varies depending on the type of coral, but a typical coral go through before it um, can't recover? Uh, that's a great question. And I don't know if I have a really clear answer to that. It, there is evidence that the coral do become weaker. Yeah. Well, there's there's a lot of things going on, and and I mean this just shows how little we understand about our oceans, even places as popular as coral reefs. Um, yeah, coral will weaken with with some coral will weaken with subsequent bleachings. That's true, but there's another um, little glimmer of hope, which is that there are many species of algae that the coral can form a symbiosis with. And it may be that bleaching is sort of an evolutionary, um, yeah, tactic, mm -hmm. because after some coral bleach, they will realign, they will be recolonized by a different species of coral, mm -hmm. 
and that um, and we're sort of seeing this all over the Pacific and even in the Caribbean as well, where the new species. So the new species of coral that will recolonize, I mean, sorry, of algae that will recolonize, can handle a higher temperature, so it can stay in the. It won't. It can stay in the coral for like a degree and a half warmer mm. temperature, but it's more selfish and it gives um, only about 60% of the sugar it makes to the coral. So the coral's kind of like making this gamble, like um, should I put myself on sort of start, you know, like a diet and, but but still have like food coming in and realign with a, a different species of algae um, so that at least I have something coming in. And, and so we're starting to see that a little bit, um, well, no, quite a bit mm. actually around the world. And we are speaking with Julie Burwald, who is a marine biologist and wrote a new book, Life on the Rocks, Building a Future for Coral Reefs. And you just spoke about maybe some hope with this new algae, but um, it has to be accepted and taken on by the coral. And what, first of all, I guess maybe taking us back a little bit and then coming to this time that we're in now, what is the timeline on when the alarm bells went off for the coral? Like when did we first notice that these things were happening and that our ocean was warming? Um, because it wasn't recent, although we're hearing about it now um, that these massive bleachings are happening. Yeah, um, the first bleachings were in the 80s, but there weren't really alarm bells yet. I would say around 1992 and 93 were when um, the first scientists, uh, this guy in particular of Hugh Goldberg, who lives in Australia, started sounding alarm bells and and pe people kind of said, oh, you're, you know, you're being overly dramatic. Mm -hmm. um, he wasn't taken as seriously as he should have been, I would say. Um, and then in the 2010s, it became very clear that every time a heat wave circled the planet, it was it was causing these mass bleachings. And then really, I would say there was a call to arms around um, 2016 and 2017. And if you've seen um, the movie Chasing Coral, mm -hmm. which I think is still streamable, mm -hmm. um, you can see how that was a, a massive, it circled the world twice. Um, a bleaching event and and that's when I think I mean the coral scientists had already gotten on board but I feel like that's when it really hit the public that this was so serious mm. so we're in this state now and the coral themselves are having to adapt uh, in this warming client climate what are scientists doing um, are they uh, interjecting? Is there help uh, for uh, the reefs? What are some of the things that are happening in the science world? There's all kinds of things happening. And that was one of the things about writing this book because I had fallen in love with coral. I, and I knew the situation is, is dire. Um, I couldn't write a book that was just an obituary. I just felt like I would be in a complete and utter depression. I couldn't couldn't write it. I wouldn't be able to write. But what I discovered is that there are a lot of things happening in the coral world, um, and they're really exciting. I mean, um, there's people looking at genetic adaptation of corals. Mm -hmm. um, it coral are 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 fascinating. There's a lot of species. There's 800 species or so of reef building corals, and they tend to hybridize very well. 
Um, they're really variable. Even when there's a bleaching, you'll find some that don't bleach. And so there's a lot of people looking for those kind of more robust corals, the corals that can handle a bleaching, um, looking to breed them, to um, find those, they're called hardened corals that, that, and then use those to replant reefs. There's a lot of work going on into coral husbandry right now. How do you um, grow corals at, in big quantities and how do you put them back on the reef? There's um, some skepticism that we could ever scale up fast enough to make a difference. Um, but, you know, at least locally or at least for reefs that are sort of hyper diverse or hyper important or the source of, of, of um, eggs, you know, gametes of larvae for other reefs, maybe we can focus our attention on those reefs. So that's happening. Um, the coral farming world is becoming more active. Uh, there's coral farmers all over the Caribbean and a lot of people are, are putting coral nurseries and coral farms. They kind of look like um, Christmas trees. People, these, they grow the corals on, um, well, there's all different ways. You can put them in aquarium on land, but you can also create a nursery underwater where you take like PVC pipes and make like a, a tree out of it with lots and lots of branches of PVC pipes and then hang little corals off on strings um, hanging off of all the branches and mm -hmm. you can create orchards of these things and and grow coral um, and then replant them on reefs that have have bleached. Um, you can sort of try to manage your orchards by shading them and and protecting them from some of the worst effects of heat waves. Uh, there's what else is happening? Oh, there's like massive people are collecting the coral only spawn once a year, which is a problem. Right. Um, but there are aquaria where they're like tricking coral into spawning more and more frequently. Um, and then there's people who are collecting the coral spawn and creating like kind of massive IVFs and making lots of larvae and settling them down on these um, little tinker toy looking settling plates. And then you can replant babies once they're kind of big enough to survive you know, they've got a little bit of a skeleton to protect them. So there is a lot happening. Um, the very first global fund for coral reefs was launched uh, in 2020. Um, and it's meant to be something like a 10, or like I think a billion dollars they're trying to put together through public and private partnerships to fund um, more research into coral reefs. There's also, oh gosh, there's people are looking at using um, uh, probiotics actually to help coral recover faster following mm. a bleaching. So right. you go around and spray probiotics on the reef. I mean, there's just a lot, a lot of ideas. There's a ton of creativity around this. I know you mentioned obviously that light plays an important role in the coral algae uh, relation, symbiotic relationship. Uh, is it possible? maybe to um, uh, generate or produce co a coral that can live in less lower light conditions, deeper in the water where it may, perhaps it's cooler, the water is cooler too. Yeah, that's such a cool question. Um, it turns out that we are still discovering coral reefs, right. which kind of blows your mind. And, it, and a lot of the reefs that we're discovering are in places where people didn't expect reefs in the past because we think of coral reefs as these like, you know, the clear, beautiful tropical right. water. And the tropics are sort of the deserts of the sea. There are few nutrients there. Um, hmm. And so there's like uh, fewer phytoplankton in the water, fewer algae. Um, 
But what we're discovering now is when you look in places that are kind of murkier, you'll find some really healthy coral reefs. And so, yeah, there's there was one found, I think a you, you, the, you might be referring to the one recently found like um, near the Galapagos, and then right. there was one off of Tahiti. Right. Um, also, they're finding reefs closer to rivers river outfalls, which are kind of sedimenty and murky. Yeah. There's one in Honduras I've been working with recently that, that's really healthy um, near the outfall of a big river. And there's one in Colombia also that was discovered recently. And so, yeah, these are places where we might be able to find clues to what uh, coral reefs of the future might look like. And you said um, recently, which struck me, is that you didn't want to write this book as an obituary. And uh, you're, it, the title is Building a Future for Coral Reefs. So what does that future look like? And how can um, someone like Chris and I, or how can people get behind uh, this, this act or acts to help save our coral reefs? Um, yeah, so... The first question, what does a coral reef of the future look like? I am honestly not sure. Um, I, 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 I don't, I don't know exactly. And, and maybe it is going to be reefs in deeper places and in more murky places. Mm -hmm. Um, it may be that the coral have tricks up their sleeves evolutionarily and we will see shifts to different species dominating reefs that can handle the warmer water. Oh, we're going to lose a lot of reefs. There's no way around that. Um, so it's, it's, um, it's, it's a tough ca call for me to sort of summarize what it's going to look like in the future. And what can we do? We really, I mean, the most important thing we can do is just really push our leaders to get, get climate change under control. Um, and 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 we're not going fast enough on that one. This is ultimately a climate change story. We've got to keep our planet cooler. And and the oceans are disproportionately buffering us right now. Ninety three percent of the heat from carbon dioxide in the from the heat in the atmosphere has gone into the oceans. And so the oceans are are really helping us out up here on land. But they won't be able to do that for very long. And so we. We just have got to really get our carbon emissions under control. Hey, and not for nothing, uh, this is my uh, opinion here. If we spent a little more money exploring the oceans, as you alluded to, uh, Julie, because there's so much we still need to learn about the oceans and our relationships with those marine systems, and a little less money trying to colonize <laughs> the moon and Mars, and et cetera. Uh, which is a, to me a colossal waste of time when <laughs> when our, we still haven't explored this planet fully uh, uh you know that would also go a long way to helping marine systems coral reefs again l no coral reefs no nursery no nursery no fish or etc no fish you know in some ways no us so there's there's connections all the way to us to a healthy coral sure. reef yeah Oh my gosh, I'm so glad you brought that up and I couldn't agree more. Like we spend, it's hard to get the numbers, but I, for, in my jellyfish book, I, the number was 250 times more money on space than on the ocean. And we live here. This yeah. is our planet, you know, this is our ocean. This is, this ocean keeps us alive. Like you said, I, a billion people depend on the ocean right. as their 
primary source of protein. But more than that, like all of our weather patterns, all of our our systems that um, keep us safe here on land come from the ocean. You know, it, it interacts with us constantly, and um, and we need to really recognize what a treasure it is. And we could talk for you so much longer about our relationship with our planet and and the ocean itself, but we do need to wrap up. If people want to learn more about you or, or to get your book, Life on the Rocks, what, where should they go? Yeah, my website is julieburwell.com. So it's, and I, my parents took my E away from me. So it's just J-U-L-I-B-E-R-W-A-L-D.com. Um, and you can find me and contact me through my contact page. I write back to everybody. Fantastic. Well, we hope that you're penning something new in the future that we right. can all uh, take in as well. And we will definitely have you back. Great. Thank you guys so much for the conversation. Thanks, Julie. Thank you, Julie. All right, let's take a break for a couple underwriters. And when we come back, we'll turn our attention to, hey, we'll talk a little more about water with David Sedlak and his new book, Water for All, Global Solutions for a Changing Climate. It's This Green Earth. We'll be right back. Welcome back to This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about our relationships with and impacts upon the environment. I'm Chris Cherniak. And I'm Claire Wiley. And joining us for the second part of the show is David Sedlak. He is a professor of civil and environmental engineering at the University of California, Berkeley, and uh, director of the Berkeley Water Center there. He's also the author of the award-winning book, Water 4.0, The Past, Present, and Future of the World's Most Vital Resource. But we're here to talk about his new book, Water for All, Global Solutions for a Changing Climate. Uh, David, thank you so much for joining us this morning on This Green Earth. Thanks for having me, Chris. So the book uh, is kind of broken into four general sections, so I thought we'll just kind of walk through each section. The first section is kind of titled The Six Water Crises. So if you like, uh, kind of list them off. Uh, What are they? Sure. So I decided that this question of water and the future of water and the effect of climate change on water resources was something that people often were confused by because they all had a different perspective on what it meant to be in a water crisis. And when I sat down and thought about it, I recognized that there's not just one global water crisis that's being spurred by climate change. Mm -hmm. There are actually six of them. And they have some similarities and they have some overlap. But I think if we can imagine water as facing six distinct challenges, it helps us in understanding the pressures that we're going to face and possible solutions we Mm -hmm. might use. So the first one is water for rich people, basically people who live in uh, wealthy countries in North America, Western Europe, Japan, Australia, places like that. Uh, We sometimes have issues with water security or water availability, but when it comes time to solving those problems, we have a lot of financial resources at our disposal. So we can build seawater desalination plants or water recycling plants that use high-tech treatment technologies, or we can even expand our dams and reservoirs. That's in stark contrast to the second and third crises, the crises facing 
people in low and middle income countries who already have connections to water systems and the unconnected, the almost uh, 800 million people around the world who don't have an improved source of drinking water. So first, those people in low and middle income countries that have access to water, if, if you've ever traveled outside the United States or outside of wealthy countries around the world, you realize that most people don't drink the water that comes out of their tap because it's unhealthy for them to drink. It's contaminated with waterborne pathogens. Mm -hmm. But people living in middle income countries also faced a host of other problems related to uh, availability of water, which they don't have the financial resources to address the way people do in wealthy countries, and, uh, and the cost of the water. And then when you get to the third crisis of people who don't even have connections to uh, a tap water source, people who generally live in either rural communities or in slums within wealthy countries, uh, sorry, within poor countries, um, you have this other challenge of having to spend a considerable amount of your income and a lot of your time going to obtain water, and the water you obtain may also be of inferior quality. So the first three crises are about access to safe and affordable drinking water. Uh, the fourth crisis is, uh, is having safe drinking water, and this is a, a a crisis that affects people irrespective of their level of income. It's water supplies that are contaminated with either uh, naturally occurring uh, substances mm -hmm. like arsenic or fluoride mm -hmm. uh, or uranium that can make people sick or uh, man-made chemicals like PFAS or organic solvents that contaminate the water supply. And the commonality here with respect to these contaminants is that we often lack the ability to remove these from the water supply. And so people are exposed to these over their entire lifetime. The fifth water crisis is the uh, need for water to grow food. And so hmm. most of the water that's taken out of the environment on earth is used for agriculture. That, that is, it's used for irrigation, but even in places where we don't irrigate, a lot of the water that falls on the land is uh, put to purposes of, of growing food or uh, providing pasture land. And that water supply is often in, in danger. We're gonna have to grow about 70% more food uh, by the year 2050, just to keep up with the uh, increase in population growth and the hunger that people who become wealthier will have for meat. And that means a lot more intensive agriculture. And right now, especially with climate change, it's uncertain whether we have enough water to do that, right. at least the way we currently farm. Right. And finally, the last of those crises, and I guess it, it goes with the idea that nature always bats last, is water for nature. Mm. And so all of the things we do to provide people with a drinking water supply or to uh, use water for food or for industry uh, results in either less water for the environment or uh, pollution that endangers the integrity of the environment. And those problems only become worse as uh, the climate changes. Well, so those are the six crises in a nutshell. Okay. And it's interesting that obviously, you know, we fall under category one or the, the vast majority of this country falls under category one water for rich people because we can many times engineer our way out of 
a crisis, right? But like you say, by building dams or uh, recycling uh, wastewater, uh, effluent from wastewater treatment plants, uh, desalination plants. But yet the, the other crises you mentioned, there may be parts of this country too that face those kinds of crises where communities have poor water quality or, or lack of wa enough water uh, for themselves or for their crops too. Because, and, and maybe there's uh, element, communities that have um, contaminated water, you know, you know and whether it's naturally con um, occurring like arsenic here in Park City. We have, you know, trace metals in our, some of our raw water from the mining as an artifact of the mining industry. So we have to deal with that, but we engineer our way out of it. Um, but maybe other communities can't afford to do that. So, so it, it, you, it, obviously, like you say, uh, it, it's, it's not as big a problem here, or at least we can throw money at the problem, but there are parts of the country here that face certain levels of crisis like that here. Oh, absolutely. I, I'm not meaning to indicate that uh, right. everyone in the United States only has the first crisis to deal with. We yes. all have this. And I think the question that you're really bringing up is particularly relevant to rural communities. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people who live in big cities typically are served by a large water utility. And in many of our metropolitan areas, we're fortunate that the 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 wealthiest people share the water supply with uh, these fortunate people and can often be uh, relied upon to help help out if, if they can't afford it. That's not universal, but that that's certainly uh, one of the things that protects people living in cities. But if you live in the countryside, um, your water systems are much more in jeopardy and the people responsible for providing you with water are often uh, trying to do so many other things like keep the roads uh, roads working and mm -hmm. take care of the trees in the town and sure. deal with everything else that a city manager or a city or small town has to deal with. And they often um, are nowhere near as, uh, I guess, provisioned to uh, to take care of some of the crises that arise. Right. And in being from Michigan myself, this hits pretty close home to me, sure, some of the land. water crises that are right. happening in our communities. There's small town St. Louis, Flint, um, that have been dealing with some of these issues. Um, but in, in turning to, you know, you have cited uh, some of these crises, um, what, and you also cite plans with promise, you call them. So what are some of these plans or things that um, you think can be put into place to help mitigate um, when you go through these crises? Well, especially in in small cities, uh, I'm not talking about, about Flint, which is actually a relatively large city and, right. and uh, with enough funding should be able to fo follow some of the paths that some of the uh, other large cities have taken. But for rural communities, there are options out there emerging. Um, some of them are, frankly, just a, a question of recognizing that if people live in a rural community, it requires more resources to keep them going. It's it's an issue of like an economy of scale. So if you live in a big city, you share your water supply with lots of people. So on a per person basis, it's less expensive. If you live in a rural community, you may need some help from the government or you may just need to pay more money um, in terms of taxes. But there are some emerging 
technologies that I think show a lot of promise for helping people living in small cities. So these days when we have a drinking water supply for a small community, it's essentially a miniaturized version of the system that serves large cities. And those require um, the same sort of design and, uh, and oversight that uh, a city of millions of people would be able to provide for their system. And in a small city, that's not the same. And so what we're seeing more and more with the revolution in manufacturing and data science, that one can build drinking water treatment plants that are completely autonomous and almost operate like an appliance. So instead of having to train a rural city manager on operating a drinking water treatment plant, uh, they can purchase a drinking water treatment plant that is equipped with uh, an ability to self-monitor and self-correct and then only call in uh, someone to help take care of it if it runs into a problem. Hmm, okay. Um, if you just join us, we're speaking with David Sedlak. He is a professor of civil and environmental engineering at the University of California, Berkeley, and the author of the new book, Water for All, Global Solutions for a Changing Climate. Um, it, it, one section uh, called uh, Using Water More Efficiently uh, is, is interesting. We can chat a little bit about, uh, uh, like you say, economies of scale. Isn't it? It's kind of an example of efficiency. Maybe there's some others. And talk a little bit about what the Jevons paradox is with respect to water. Sure. So, you know, the idea of using water more efficiently is just like what we've learned as a society about energy. Uh, mm -hmm. the, they say that the best power plant that you'll ever build is the one that you don't have to build. That is, uh, if you can conserve and use energy more efficiently, you probably don't have to build a new power plant. And that's also true in the water sector. So we've made as a society tremendous gains in terms of water efficiency in the last 50 years. In, in fact, most cities uh, that don't have uh, rapidly growing populations are using uh, considerably less water than they did uh, five decades ago. And that's because the per capita water use has come down every year for the last 50 years as a result of improvements in plumbing and appliances. So you no longer have those uh, top loading washing machines that used uh, you know 20 gallons mm -hmm. per load. You have a front loading or a modern efficient washing machine that uses much less water. And that's true of most of the appliances in people's homes. But the real place where efficiency uh, has a big payoff is in agriculture. So especially in the West where agricultural water supplies are limited, we've gone from uh, flood irrigation being the main way that we irrigated crops to uh, center pivot irrigation and sprinklers and increasingly have gone to uh, things like micro drip irrigation and soil moisture sensors. And so we've developed the ability to achieve more crop per drop. So, you know, for a given amount of water that some that a farmer has the rights to, they can grow much more crop than they could um, 30 or 40 years ago. And the Jevons paradox is something that we have to look out for because it, it happens again and again. And it's a phenomena that resource economists refer to when the cost of doing something becomes lower and people use that savings or that reduction in cost to redirect the resource to something else. So Jevons um, 
had looked at this for in the early days of the steam engine when uh, suddenly it was possible to generate much more uh, energy more quickly. And instead of using less energy, people found other ways to, to uh, apply that energy in other processes. And that's true in uh, agriculture, especially in the Western US. And that is as we've transitioned to more efficient ways of irrigation, it's not like we've freed up more water for the environment or freed up more water for downstream users. Many farmers will take those savings and do what any logical person would do, which is to grow crops that, uh, that are more valuable. And quite often those more valuable crops use more water. Mm -hmm. And so um, we have to be careful as we subsidize or encourage people to use water more efficiently that we think about what happens to the water that they save because the logical thing that a person will do is use that water for other purposes on their own rather than returning it to their environment or sharing it with their neighbors right. that's interesting that so so kind of localize it here in utah we grow a lot of alfalfa and so it's the example would be if i have a uh, hundred acres of alfalfa and it takes, I don't know, just round numbers, a million gallons of water. If I can grow that 100 acres of alfalfa using 800,000 gallons of water, the money I save from that water, I can go and buy more land to grow more alfalfa. And now I'm back to using a million gallons of water. Is that <laughs> kind of the idea? That's there? more or less the way it works. But I mean, you're growing more food in the yeah. process, which is a wonderful thing. Yes. But if someone was counting on that water showing up downstream to support a fish migration or to provide water for a downstream farmer, uh, that's just not going to happen. And that segues nicely to my next question, which the one of the, the sixth crisis you mentioned is water for nature. And like you say, nature is usually last in line. The stream is last in line, or the trout that are living in the stream are last in line when it comes to who gets water. Um, and here, the better example, the more broader existential example, is the Great Salt Lake. The Great Salt Lake is now the last in line when it comes to uh, the water that comes out of the mountains and eventually used to make it to the Great Salt Lake, but doesn't anymore because it's being used for municipal purposes or agricultural purposes. And so that's a wonderful example of a, of a crisis that, uh, that, that the Great Salt Lake can benefit from our economies of scale, efficiency, new technologies, et cetera. And, and the Great Salt Lake is not alone. The yeah. Aral Sea in Central Asia, the Salton Sea in California. So many of the world's terminal lakes have suffered from this problem of being last in line for the water. And, and we can see as they, they dry up, it's just one of the most obvious cases of it. But there are lots of other places where this impact is more subtle, you know, where we have streams that used to have uh, springtime floods because of snowmelt mm -hmm. and that supported salmon runs and, and moved the sediments downstream so it recreated the uh, the river banks so that it, it could support the benthic creatures. Um, that's changed when you put a, a, a dam or reservoir on, on a stream and and so these impacts that we've had with the infrastructure we've created to support society, uh, they're a real drag on the environment and as the climate changes, so for us in the West, it's this process of aridification where um, it just gets drier and hotter. Um, it's going to become more apparent that we either have to release more water to the environment or watch these systems continue to decline. 
And we're working a lot with Rights to Water, who has the, the rights to in, water in as Utah, well. In Utah, it is, uh, David, it is a uh, it's Byzantine and labyrinth uh, with respect to, yeah, Clara says, who gets water, how much, and, you know, if you don't use it all, you lose it, et cetera. So we have some really complicated water laws here. I don't know what it's like in California, but in Utah, it's really challenging. <laughs> it's, 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 it's as bad, if not worse, and it's true throughout most of the Western U.S., but it's right. also, uh, maybe if it's not as Byzantine and, and lawyer-focused in the rest of the world, I think just about every place on Earth has um, things related to water rights that may not be logical, but also may not be easily fixable. And that's one of the big dilemmas we face is that even if the legal framework wasn't as complicated, the political and social aspects of who owns the water will always be contentious. Well, along those lines, uh, California has had a real whipsaw experience in the past just four or five years with respect to water, you know, going from extreme droughts to to in you know i don't know an overabundance at let's say this past uh year but groundwater is also really uh gone through some real crisis there what is the condition of state of water surface and groundwater in california one of the great things about crises Chris, is it allows us to rethink some of the mistakes of the past. Right. And so the result of the drought that ended around 2016 or so was that the state finally started to regulate groundwater. So we were one of the only um, states in the country that didn't have like a, a formal groundwater regulation system. There were basins that were adjudicated where hmm. we had groundwater regulation, but importantly, some of the uh, large agricultural basins in the center of the state were unregulated. And during the uh, during the crisis, it provided an opportunity for the state to pass regulations about groundwater. And what I find particularly um, encouraging about it is that these regulations are not top-down from a state bureaucrat. What they're asking the communities to do, and that's the farmers and the towns and cities in the area is to come together in what they call groundwater management agencies or little districts hmm. and make a plan to make their use of water sustainable. And it's not something that has to happen overnight. They have a couple of decades to actually get there, but they have to show that they have a plan. And I think that's the kind of change that we need in the West is to, uh, to allow local control uh, to um, bring people together to recognize that uh, it's a shared resource and it has to be managed in a way that it's not going to continue to decline as far as the eye can see. So I, I'm optimistic there and I'm optimistic in a few other places where people are recognizing that it's time to stop kicking the can down the road and get serious about solving some of these problems. Right. And you're working towards these solutions. Is there um, a place in the world or are there people um, that are uh, creating these solutions that have been proven or that are working that we can look to to model right. after? There are so many places around the world where people are 
pioneering new solutions. And I, I give many examples in the book of these places. And I think it's something that we see over and over again with respect to large scale societal change. There are these safe spaces or isolated places where people uh, pioneer a new way to solve a problem and they they struggle with it and then they come up with something and other people come and visit and, and see the idea and realize that it works and they take it home with them. And that's how change comes about. And so um, when I look around the world, I see some very positive uh, examples and people are starting to learn about it. When I think about cities that are doing a good job with water, um, I think about uh, Southern California, particularly Orange County, hmm. and I think about Singapore in, in hmm. Southeast Asia, where essentially all of the treated wastewater is being recycled and reused as part of the water supply. And that idea of potable water recycling, which really got going about 30 years ago, is now spreading throughout the West and Southwest of the United States and throughout Europe and even parts of Australia and Asia. So in terms of cities, that's one example. Uh, another example of, uh, of um, in, in agriculture, I think that a lot of us look to is what happened in the Murray-Darling Basin in Australia during their millennial drought, um, where they, they had an extreme drought and people rethought some of these historic water rights for agriculture. They implemented better irrigation practices and they created water markets that allowed people to trade water. But perhaps most importantly, they set aside some of the water that they saved for the environment and for protecting it. So even though um, people may have taken their eye off the ball after they, they did that, it was an example that showed that, you know, if you have a large basin like the size of the Colorado River or the Mississippi River or the Rhine River, um, you can actually use a crisis to rethink some of the problems. And if you have a plan in place, uh, you can create something that's uh, a win-win situation for everyone. And so I, I'm optimistic that if we look towards these kinds of examples, uh, we can stop playing the game of um, responding to crisis with um, desperation, but actually have plans ready to go. Well, the name of the book is Water for All, Global Solutions for a Changing Climate. The author is David Sedlak. Professor Sedlak, is there a website people can go to to learn more about your work and, and your books? Well, you can look look me up. I'm here at Berkeley. I think I'm the only, only Sedlak here so uh, uh, you can certainly see my research but the uh, there, there's not a website with this book it's just the book all right but it's available it's out now uh, yes it's, it's available from Yale University Press and and perfect. wherever uh, books can be purchased all right thank you again for joining us this morning on this screen yes we appreciate you and your positive outlook and we do hope Always people like read that. the book yeah to see uh, where there some of these solutions lie and Maybe we can get more involved here as well in Utah. We can always do that. Thanks. Yes. <laughs> Thanks, Great. Thanks nice professor. Thanks, Professor. All right. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Bye -bye.